Tiffany, and you're listening to the Busy Bitch Podcast and Book Club. I'm a 20-something-year-old teacher that takes on way too much, but honestly, couldn't imagine life any other way. During COVID lockdown, I reconnected with my love of reading, but realized I have no one to talk to about these books. I read a bit of everything, so if you have almost no one to discuss books with, love to read, and read a wide variety of books, join me here each and every all we were going to read Alpha by Jacinda Wilder. I had the disclaimer that I had never read and don't know a single thing about this author or book and that, well, we were walking into this a bit blindfolded. Eh? Eh? You guys get it? I know. I know. That was, that was really bad. But I had to. Just couldn't resist. Before we even start, I want to talk about this girl's name. I want to call her Kiri, but from the very beginning of the book, with her correcting her douchebag boss, I'm just not sure how to say it. I tried really hard to say how she corrected him, and I just don't get it. Maybe I am saying it right, and that's why the correction just doesn't make sense? Either way, I'm going to pronounce it how I want, and uh, you're just going to know who I'm talking about, alright? So, let's do this thing. In total transparency, because, let's be real, when do I ever hold back with you guys? I had strong negative feelings about this book in the beginning. And these feelings weren't about accepting checks worth lots of money, or the message on the first few checks, or even Harris coming and collecting her. While I might not have been... A huge fan of some of those things or the way they were handled, my negative feelings were triggered in the beginning of chapter two. I seriously, seriously hated those first couple pages in chapter two. Like how he just kept denying and reiterating how he wasn't, wasn't a dominant, but in the very next lines, he confirmed that he was in fact a fucking dominant. It's as if he himself has a problem with the word dominant, and maybe he does. I mean, I don't know his life. Maybe he just needs to be educated about what a dominant in a relationship is or or can be. Because, really, honestly, there isn't just one way to do that, right? It's a, it's a fairly wide open umbrella term so wide that one gender isn't necessarily dominant, right? Men or women can be it, or now with people deciding that they they switch genders or, you know, don't identify with either gender, you do you people. But what I'm getting at is it could be anyone. A dominant could could be anything. Let me back up real quick and give you a bit of info about me. Just so you know, I'm not basing my feelings and opinion off of a good old Google search or making it up from reading books, even though I have read plenty of those. So I am currently not in a dominant submissive relationship. It's just not who my hubs is. 
But in my past, I wasn't one. I didn't know what it was called at that time. I didn't wear a collar. I didn't call him master or sir. We didn't have a red room of pain. But looking back on that time in my life, I would say without a doubt, I was his submissive and I was in a dominant submissive relationship and not just in the sexual way, like our entire relationship, both in and out of the bedroom, car, truck, and any anywhere else we happened to have sex. We just didn't put labels on it. And maybe he knew and thought the label would scare me? I'm not sure. All this to say, I have had some experience. And by all means, it was a great experience. But I am no expert. So when Mystery Man, aka Roth, aka Valentine says, I am not a dominant Curie. You are not my slave, nor my submissive. And then goes on to say, I own you, but you will submit to me willingly. I was very, 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 very confused. In fact, that's exactly what I wrote in the book. I highlighted that paragraph and wrote very confused. Because I feel like while some consider their submissives a slave or a or their pet, that submissive submitted to them willingly. And while not all dominants say they own their sub, I would bet some solid money that the feelings behind that ownership or possession and calling their submissive theirs are all very, very similar. And yes, this is a very different thing than when you call your significant others and say that they are yours and you are theirs. Having been in both types of relationships, let me just tell you there's a difference. It doesn't mean there's more love between two people in a dominant submissive relationship. It's just, it's hard to put in words, but it's just different. I would say that it's likely they trust each other more and are more open with each other in that dominant submissive relationship. Anyway, getting back to the story. Another line that really bothered me was when he said he was not a dominant. I don't derive pleasure from inflicting or receiving pain. I derive pleasure from control, from obedience. So I sit back and my issue with this is that Not all doms get off on pain. But I would argue that one characteristic, one trait that all doms have is is control and having their submissive obey them. I just feel like this chapter, maybe just these couple of pages, Jacinda paints dominance and dominant submissive relationships in such a bad light. Like, that they're non-consensual and full of pain, and that's just terrible. Because 
It's just not how it is. And now there's a possibility that someone who knows nothing about this BDSM lifestyle read this book and now thinks negatively about people who choose to live this way. Ah. I'm really frustrated about this. Anyways, I want to point out some of the ways that Roth is, in fact, a dominant man. He says he isn't. But he is. So let's see. I don't even know where to start because there are so, so many examples of this. Okay, let's just start with his own words then. He derives pleasure from control and obedience. I mean, come on, people. How much more dominant do we get there? He says that he owns her and she will submit to him. Again, if that's not dominant, I don't know what is. Ooh. And we can't forget about her being blindfolded for, what is it, three days around him? And then when she marks him with a hickey and he sort of kind of freaks out and then punished her. He had her get on her hands and knees and when she didn't comply promptly, he pinched her nipple. And then he smacked and caressed her ass. I do. I do feel like this fits under the dominant behavior category and... I can find examples of him exhibiting dominant behaviors throughout the book. So let me just be clear when I say, I do think he is a dominant man. And there is nothing wrong with being in a dominant submissive relationship as long as it's what you want. I know many people can thrive in that sort of relationship. I myself, I miss it. And even though there are some things, or shall we call them kinks, that I don't fully understand, I do get that for some people, they really like those, those things or kinks. And it's always possible they wouldn't like what I like. So, you know. Have an open mind. Don't judge others. And whatever you choose to do, just be safe and consensual. From here on out, we're uh, talking about the three S's in this story. Stalking, sex, and secrets. First up, the stalking. Okay, so Roth confirms that he's been stalking her. Though he does clarify and says that he has been watching, waiting, and protecting, which doesn't that just sound a teeny tiny bit creepy? Also, coupled with the blindfold and her not being able to see him, oh, and the fact that she was, you know, collected, it just sent up creeper red flags all over the place for me. So, in his defense, if we can even call it a defense, he himself didn't always do the stalking. He paid someone else to do it. Now, honestly, I'm not. I'm not sure that that makes things better. Maybe it makes it worse. And yeah, 
he does lay out two very serious, very dangerous situations that he, or his man, saved her from. So I can get down with this whole protecting bit. But the fact that he has not just one, but several flash drives full of pictures of her, if that doesn't qualify as stalkerish, then I don't know what does. Oh, and we can't forget that he knows all this information about her and her family. She does kind of state her own definition of stalking as someone who watches her every move, sends creepy letters, makes heavy breathing phone calls, and whacks off standing at her window. So no, he didn't do all these things. And he was very specific in, you know, not watching her get, get naked while she dressed or showered and no naked pictures and that kind of thing. But yes, he watched her or had someone watch her. And yes, he did send creepy letters. Remember those first few checks? In my opinion, case closed. He was without a doubt stalking her. While it was only with good intention, it's still stalking. Our second S is sex. And while I seriously hated and did not like the situation in the beginning of the book, damn, Jacinda is good at building up some sexual tension. Well, not every scene. All right. Most of them weren't a hang on, let me go grab my vibrator kind of scene and I have a theory about why they uh, just weren't this way for me. I was just not invested in Roth. Even though he does sound super sexy. And I had to look up that that Alex person they were talking about. Um, and he looks sexy too. Have you Googled him? I just wasn't invested in them as a couple. Maybe I need to know more about them or see them do more than just fucking go sailing. I don't know. I did really enjoy some of the sex scenes though. And Roth definitely has some really good advice that we all should listen to before you ask someone to stop. Think about if you really want them to stop or are you just wanting that because you're afraid of liking or trying something new. Real talk. This is good advice, you guys. This is good advice for everyone. But really, truly, if you don't want something to happen, then speak up. Finally, our third S, secret. Now, when I was reading chapter two and this deep, very dark secret that he was keeping from her. One that affects them both and will make her want to walk away. My mind immediately said, he is somehow responsible for her father's death. Anyone else think that too? I mean, this couldn't have come as a surprise to anyone other than, you know, Kiri. I mean, Jacinda was very, very deliberate in giving us info about her father's death and how that sort of sent her whole world into a tailspin and just changed everything. Plus, it's not like 
There are a whole lot of other things that could be very deep and dark and connect the two of them and make her want to leave. So fast forward to almost end of the book and they're sitting in his tower and he feels like now is the time to tell her, you know, just after some amazing morning sex. Because what better time to tell the woman you are falling for that you killed her dad? And he tells her just like that. Honestly, could he not have come up with a better way to deliver that info? I mean, there is no good way to tell someone this. But come on, man. You were so smooth with your words all the other times. And now you just blurt it out. I did it. It was me. Then you slow the fuck down until this long, drawn-out story of what happened. Could you not have summed up that story at least a little bit? I know it was important. She needed to hear it. But surely, there were things she could have glossed over a little. Anyways, she ended up leaving, and he just let her. Which I know, she needed her space to process and get her head in the right place, but... I don't think he even apologized. And if he truly wanted her back, why wouldn't he somehow give her his contact info? I mean, Roth, you know everything about her. Everything. Send her a freaking email with your address or number so she can contact you when she's ready to come running back. (sighs) Of course, he doesn't. And... On her way out, Eliza and Harris speak up on his behalf all about how good of a man he is and that she should give him another chance. She cries and spills the truth of it all to her bestie Layla, which let's just say that Layla is a top-notch friend and without a doubt deserves the title of best friend. And the next thing you know, a month has passed. Oh, freak a month. This girl, she is stubborn. Because here's my rule. If you are unhappy without him, and being with him could make you happy, and, and this is possibly the most important part, he doesn't physically or emotionally harm you, then be with him. Don't put yourself in him through all this turmoil just because you think it's what you should do. Sometimes you gotta follow your heart. And she sort of does. She even talks about how she backed out of getting on a plane and just didn't know how to contact him. Oh, and how she kind of fantasized about him coming and asking for her back. And during these three months, I'm left wondering... Where the fuck is Harris? Like, you know, he's there watching out for her. So why isn't it communicated with Roth that she almost took a plane to see him? Because Roth is busy paying for things left and right for her. But no one makes any contact with her. Until the letter. Which is when she has to walk out the door. Let me repeat that again. It's when she has to walk out that door and she has to get into the car and she has to do it all. 
I know. I know. He's not one to beg and plead, but I think a little bit of begging and pleading would have done him some good in this situation. I mean, he did kill her father. While it was an accident, it happened. So she gets to and into the car, thanks to Layla. Seriously, best friend of the year over here. And then her and Roth, just what? Sit there? Stare at each other? That's not exactly the kind of welcome I was expecting. It was just a bit odd, but that's just me. What do I know? Okay, now, real talk. The girl has spent the last, what, seven years of her life growing up real fast. She's constantly trying to hold a decent job and pay for her schooling and her brother's. So, wouldn't she be just a little teeny tiny bit worried about leaving her job and school for multiple weeks without sending a word to them? I know it was, you know like a whirlwind, once-of-a-lifetime thing being collected and sent over to uh, Roth. But I feel like the book just skipped over this part. I'm not really sure what could have been done, but I just think it's important not to forget about the real world that is still happening, even while she's over in his tower. Also, can we talk about his house real quick? Like, logistically. How is this whole thing even possible? I want to see the blueprints. The library sounds magical, and I'd love to go explore it. But those showers? Oh, dreamy. Imagine all the shower sex you could have in them. It'd be the best. Plus, she got a closet fully stocked. I mean, it even came with stuff from Fredericks of Hollywood, which shout out to them. I'm really sad their physical stores shut down because as a sexually active teenager in high school, they were the only place I could get lingerie without having the sales ladies judge me. It was a safe place for all people, no matter their age, shape, size. Okay. All right. So did your copy of the book have the deleted pages at the end? Jacinda says that she edited them out at the very end, but included them for us because she knows we love our sex scenes. So of course I read them. I feel like I don't quite understand where these pages fit in in the end. The best thing I could gather is this is what could have happened. Instead of the ending she gave us, like an alternate ending. And I feel like both of these endings kind of left me wanting. Like, I guess I wanted them to embrace and have some sweet, passionate sex. Almost like we needed a, a middle ground between what happened and then the scene that was edited out. I do think this edited out scene would have been more of them, but oh well. Overall, this book was Decent. Definitely not the best. Not the worst. Poor Roth. He started out at such a deficit in the beginning. I feel like I never truly got to know him or even like him. And maybe because of that, I didn't 
get drawn into their story. I could take them or leave them as a couple. If I never hear any news about them again, I'd be fine. And if I did, eh, that's cool too. Unlike one of my favorite couples, Mia and Gabe, give me all the details about them. Plus, this book just put me off from the start. It had a lot to make up for. And while I was able to finish it without cringing and did truly enjoy parts of it, I didn't love it. I give this book three out of five glasses of wine. It really, it's just middle of the road. Honestly, if I was reading this book on my own, I probably wouldn't read the next one. But I took a sneak peek and read the first paragraph of the next book and it is a continuation of their story or at least that's what I could gather out of those few words. So next week we will talk about Beta by Jacinda Wildler. If you have any future recommendations for a book in any genre, please let me know by email busybitchpodcast at gmail.com. That's busybitch without the I podcast at gmail.com or Instagram busybitchpod. Until next time, happy reading. and podcast image was created, recorded, and edited by me, Tiffany. Music is Voxel Revolution by Kevin McLeod.